This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Development of Type 1 Diabetes Mellitus by Dr. Michael Agus. Hi and welcome. I'll be speaking today about diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA. My name is Michael Agus. I am a pediatric intensive care doctor and a pediatric endocrinologist at Boston Children's Hospital. I'm the director of the Medicine Critical Care Program here at Children's and an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. I'll start by explaining how one gets diabetes to begin with because uh, it's a surprise to many that diabetes really occurs, uh, develops over a period of many, many months. Uh, when endocrinologists in uh, Boston uh, set up uh, the Diabetes Prevention Trial, or DPT-1, several years ago, uh, although we weren't able to stop the onset of diabetes, we were able to track uh, people getting diabetes. And the way we chose uh, the most likely people to get diabetes were to look at uh, first-degree relatives of patients with diabetes. Uh, we know that patients who are about to get diabetes have a genetic predisposition and then they have some environmental component uh, that uh, occurs at some point in their life. We don't understand what that, what that environmental component is, you know, but we understand that if you have that genetic predisposition, you are at risk to be affected by the environmental exposure. Uh, when uh, trying to identify patients at increased risk, those first degree relatives, so siblings, parents, uh, children, instead of having the usual background rate in the North American population, for example, of 0.5% roughly uh, of type 1 diabetes, uh, people who have a first degree relative with diabetes are at a tenfold increased risk and are now uh, have a 5% incidence of type 1 diabetes. Uh, so you went from 1 in 200 to 1 in 20. Uh, by uh, following these people who are at increased risk of getting diabetes, uh, we can understand that they begin to lose beta cell function months and months and months prior to the onset of uh, clinical symptoms of diabetes. So if we were, if we were going to take an example of a child who uh, is developing diabetes, we could look at this particular graph. And you see that even though uh, she didn't know she was on her way to get diabetes, she's been losing beta cell function, beta cell mass from autoimmune destruction over a period of many months. Uh, when she's at the point that you see here, uh, there's no symptoms whatsoever. She has enough insulin uh, to cover the, the meals, cover her basal production. Uh, when she moves to the next step, she has intermittent hyperglycemia. That uh, refers to the fact that uh, when she has a, a, a large carbohydrate load, a ice cream sundae, for example, uh, blood sugar may go up into the 2-300. She may get a little flushed. She may have increased urine output because she, her glucose has exceeded the renal threshold of 180 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, but she'll have an extra cup of water, maybe a little bit thirsty, and come right back down uh, into the uh, mid to low 100s after that. Almost nobody gets diagnosed in that uh, particular period, with the uh, rare exception 
of a child of a mother with diabetes. That's not a medical rule, but it's a sociological uh, reality that uh, a family member who has diabetes, in particular a mother, will be much more vigilant at checking the child uh, from the time they're born, doing a finger stick here and there when they have a tantrum, uh, when something doesn't look quite right. Uh, and so those patients are likely to get diagnosed a little bit earlier. Most patients will continue uh, to lose beta cell function and move into this yellow zone of frequent hyperglycemia. Uh, and with hyperglycemia, again, over the renal threshold of 180, you get polyuria. And when you, get, when you lose uh, that water, you'll get thirsty, and so you get polydipsia. And diagnosis at this point may have more to do with the family's sleep set up than anything else. If, uh, for example, a child is going to share the bathroom with the adults and they're going to notice in the middle of the night that they're getting up four times at night. They live in a massive house and uh, or the child uses a different bathroom. That may be uh, a lot longer period until the parents notice that the child's getting up at night. Same thing at school depending on how uh, vigilant or how, how much the, the teacher notices. Uh, but despite the difference in what the adults see, what happens to the child is pretty identical. Uh, and over a period of at very least a couple of weeks, the child will become more and more symptomatic. Uh, in retrospect, one can often uh, find symptoms well, well beyond just the two weeks of polydipsy and polyuria. See a little bit of weight loss, uh, maybe some growth stunting, um, maybe some uh, increased hunger, uh, because of that weight loss, they're not able to sustain a normal weight. Uh, if uh, this period goes unnoticed, uh, the, the patient can progress to diabetic ketoacidosis, uh, and we'll talk about that in a minute. The interesting thing, however, is that not all patients really have a clear history of two or three weeks of uh, polydipsy and polyuria until they present with ketoacidosis. Rather, uh, they're basically fine on Monday, and then on Tuesday, uh, they're in extremis, uh, quite ill. And so if we go back and, and look at a patient who, say, is in the green zone uh, on a Monday, what changes between Monday and Tuesday? Is it that they lose beta cell mass, uh, a massive amount of beta cell function over a day? That, 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 that can't be true because we know that it takes months and months and months, up to 10 to 12 months, to develop clinical diabetes. So much more likely what happens is that they encounter uh, a stress. And if you uh, look at uh, the, the patient in the green zone, when they go from Monday to Tuesday, what changes is not their beta cell mass. What changes is their insulin requirement. And what was enough insulin on Monday to keep them under control is suddenly on Tuesday not nearly enough, and it throws them right into ketoacidosis. And so what could have happened between Monday and Tuesday to create uh, that kind of differential in insulin requirement? Well, uh, stress is, is a very straightforward answer, and, and basically in childhood it can be virtually any kind of stress. Uh, it can be a viral illness, it can be dehydration, it can be a, an injury, a fever. Uh, now if we uh, you know, take one of those, say a viral illness, and, and look how it progresses through, we see that any viral illness can lead to decreased uh, water intake, dehydration, uh, and in any of us, when we get a little bit of hypovolemic, uh, when we get a little bit of hypovolemia, uh, we will begin to counterregulate with stress hormones. Uh, primarily, those are cortisol and epinephrine, but uh, there's a whole 
host of uh, hormones, catecholamines, that uh, begin to get increased in the setting of stress. And those give anybody a little bit of insulin resistance. And so uh, in somebody without diabetes, that might bump their blood sugar from a baseline of you know, 80 to baseline of 95. Still within the normal range, but a slight increase. Why is, is the body uh, triggering a response to increase blood sugar slightly? No, no one really understands that. No one understands if there's any survival benefit to 95, for example, over 80. But in, in patients with evolving uh, diabetes or with frank diabetes, a little bit of insulin resistance goes a long way from a blood glucose point of view. And instead of bumping from 80 to 95, they go from 80 to 180 and then to 280 and to 380. And as they hit that renal threshold of about 180 milligrams per deciliter, they will begin to uh, spill a lot of urine. And, and with that polyuria, they will lose even more fluid. They'll get even more dehydrated. They'll counter-regulate even more. Uh, and as a result, they'll begin to develop even more significant insulin resistance. That insulin resistance will become significant enough that instead of just increasing the glucose concentration, they'll begin to have significant ketone production. Ketones are a weak acid, but in significant concentrations, they'll give you a significant acidosis. Uh, that will trigger even more counter-regulation. Once you get into this cycle, there is no way out uh, without insulin. This is a spiral that uh, untreated with insulin uh, will result in death. This is the, uh, the death spiral to, to demonstrate that uh, there are no case reports of somebody getting uh, diabetic ketoacidosis and spontaneously surviving. Uh, the, unless you get insulin therapy, there is no way out. The problem with DKA is insulin deficiency, and the cure for DKA is insulin. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.